Well, some years ago, I guess, uh, actually it's uh, more than 10 years now, I spent most of a year on a, on a lengthy pilgrimage in India with uh, a friend who uh, was a Buddhist, is a Buddhist monk. Some of you may know him. His name is Ajahn Amaro. And he was the abbot uh, here in California of the Abhayagiri Monastery. It's in the Thai forest lineage, uh, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho lineage. He's now the abbot at Amaravati uh, in England. And um, during that year, especially um, for must, must, much of the time, we were visiting Buddhist uh, pilgrimage sites, some of them quite obscure ones that Ajahn Amaro had read about. We went to every place uh, we could find. But there was a period of the year during what's called the Rains Retreat, and it's uh, 12 weeks, more or less, three lunar months. And at that time, in the Theravada tradition, the uh, monks and nuns determined to stay in one place. They don't wander about. Um, and there are certain rules about how that's determined. And so after looking around and, and trying to figure out where to do that, uh, Ajahn Amaro decided he would like to spend the rains in a place called Savati, uh, nowadays in modern uh, day India, it's called the village near there is called Sahet Mahet. But the ancient walls of that, uh, that city, Savati, are still there. Um, and it's, it's a place where uh, I believe that the Buddha spent more rains periods there than any other place and delivered more uh, discourses in that place than any other single place. So there's a real uh, sense of um, that being a kind of a, a heart spot for the teachings. And there's a famous, beautiful park there called the Jetavana that's outside the city walls, and it's a large area that was, um, off, had, was offered to the Buddha at that time and became uh, a place where there were some uh, dwellings, and the ancient ruins are there. Uh, one that is said to have been where the Buddha's kuti or meditation hut was and other ones. And uh, we, we were staying a, a bit of a distance away from this, uh, from the Jetavana. But our, our um, daily ritual, you could say, was to uh, get up quite early, uh, staying at, we were staying at actually one of the, at the Korean temple, Vihara. Vihara is a, uh, in those, it's an abiding place, a place to stay. And there are these pilgrim rest houses from all different Buddhist countries. And we were staying at the Korean temple. And we would walk uh, through the, along the road, sometimes through the parts of the fields, uh, early morning before the sun came up, when it was just still, um, just barely getting a bit light, so that we could arrive at the Jetavana for sunrise. And we would spend the morning uh, practicing, meditating there. And we each had our spot. So we'd go together to where the Buddha sat and spend a bit of time there. And then Ajahn would go to his place and I would go to my place and we would practice. And at a certain point, I, I would go out and get some tea and bring back to offer for, his, uh, for him to have some refreshment mid-morning before we went back to have our meal. And uh, as we left where we were staying, we were often accompanied by a six or eight dogs. We had given them all names. We named them after food. <laughs> so cookie and biscuit and crispy cream uh, would come along with us partway. I remember Ajahn Amaro made me promise not to tell anybody at Abayagiri, where he was resident at that time, uh, that we had all these dogs that we had named because there was a lot of, there was an issue around having pets there and you know, they'd say, well, Ajahn had six dogs in, in India, and we can't have any here. But Anyway, often when we were walking along in this early morning, because there were uh, these various uh, monasteries and uh, rest houses associated with different Buddhist countries, and there was often, because this was a very, um, you know, a, a revered pilgrimage spot, there would be chanting coming out, uh, broadcast over speakers from one or another of the Viharas there, and, and it was this kind of timeless feeling walking 
uh, through the rice fields and along the road there in rural India and hearing the chanting coming out. And many times I, I was, became aware that uh, the chanting that we would be hearing uh, was the Satipatthana Sutta, which we'd been discussing, and um, that Andrea gave a very beautiful sort of overview and introduction to last night. And uh, this is one of the most revered chants in, uh, in the Buddhist tradition in, in many countries. And uh, in places like Burma, where I've spent a lot of time, uh, there are people who chant this every day. Um, so um, we would hear this um, floating out in the early morning coolness there, in the pre, pre-sunrise, pre-dawn uh, walking. So I wanted to actually play a little bit of that chant tonight. And this is not the, uh, a recording that we heard, but it's a very beautiful one. Uh, comes from a, a Sri Lankan monk, uh, Venerable Omalpe Sobita Mahatera, and it's, he's from Sri Lanka. So um, I just invite you to receive this as kind of a, uh, just an offering and, and maybe kind of an energetic transmission. So I'll play just uh, a few minutes of that, uh, of the Satipatthana Sutta in the original Pali. Bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Satima, 
Kiniyaloke abhijjado manasam Dhammi sudhammanu pasi viharati Atapi sampajano satima Vinayaloke abhijjado manasam Once in a while I, I begin a talk with this, playing this chanting and I, it's always hard for me to start talking afterwards. I, I usually think I'll just, I should just let it play. One of these days I'll do that. The chanting began with the words after the homage, the namutasa, with the words, ewang me sutang. It's translated as, thus I have heard. And these teachings were, they were heard. <laughs> Someone, they were spoken. And were rem- memorized, remembered. And then, over a long time, preserved that way for hundreds of years and then written down. Thus I have heard that once the Buddha was dwelling in the country of the Kurus, in a village in the town of Kuru uh, Kamasadamma, in the uh, place of the Kuru people. And on from there, this... um, unfolding of this teaching, which is the, the, um, the most complete set of instructions in the entire uh, collection of teachings for our practice. Our practice here is drawn from this uh, in so many ways. And Andrea spoke beautifully about this last night, and there's a, there are these four establishments, or four foundations. I prefer establishment, as she used that word last night. Uh, you could call it a, a sphere of attention, a place where we bring our attention. And the, the beautiful thing about this teaching and about these four establishments of mindfulness is that they include the entirety of our life, of what we can experience, of what we can know as a human. There is nothing left out of those. It's an organization of it in a certain way, but it includes everything. There is no part of Uh, what we experience left out of that teaching. It's all in there. And we look at it in these certain ways. And sometimes when we hear this, Andrea went through the the different things of uh, mindfulness of body, of feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neither of these, of the mind, of these patterns of experience or lenses of of dhammas. And and it can sound like um, a lot to do there. And that, oh, you know, somehow, sometime, we're going to have to make our way through, through this whole thing in some methodical and, and probably laborious, unpleasant way. And, um, and we can see it also as a kind of sequence that starts here and, and goes along. And, and, and it can seem like a lot to do there. And, um, and there is a certain way that it is unfolded and, and elaborated upon and taught, and there is some sequentialness to there. There is some truth to that. And it, there is some movement from what is more obvious or, or coarse or gross, not gross in an awful way, but in a more obvious or more tangible way to that which is more subtle. But any one of these foundations ultimately leads to and includes all the others, and any one of them is, has the potential to uh, lead to the fulfillment of the path. And in our actual practice, most of the time, we're not so much really steering our attention and, and placing it within one of these frames of reference or arenas 
our spheres of attention. There's a natural way that, the, that our experience unfolds and opens into all of them. That just happens very organically. And we may highlight them at different times, or one or another may become strong or present itself. But for example, we may, uh, as we've been doing in the instructions in these first two days, we're bringing attention to uh, the body, to simply feeling the sensations of the body sitting in whatever posture it is, or standing, walking. And as we do that, we may become aware of certain kinds of sensations, and perhaps um, there's a, a strong sensation after we've been sitting for a while that has a very, may become an unpleasant feeling there. And we notice that. That's the second establishment of mindfulness. We become aware of Vedana, unpleasant feeling tone. We notice that uh, there's a reactivity of resistance or tightening or aversion to that that, that comes in the mind. And, and that's the third establishment. We see, um, oh, this is... This has arisen. This is the quality of the mind in this moment. And that's also the fourth foundation because it may uh, present itself as a hindrance, as one of the hindrances. So that, that's just a natural flow and, and it flows through and among these in a very uh, natural way. And then at times we may have bring more intentionality, but mostly we let this happen. Tonight I want to, um, if I ever get to it, um, talk a bit uh, in more in detail on uh, the first establishment of mindfulness on uh, kaya nupasana, mindfulness directed to the body. There's a place in the Anguttara Nikaya, one of the collections of teachings, where the Buddha uh, praised mindfulness of the body. I'd like to read a couple of stanzas from that. He said, even as one who encompasses with their mind, the mighty ocean, includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean. Just so, O bhikkhus, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. And one thing, O bhikkhus, that if developed and cultivated leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. One thing, O bhikkhus, if developed and cultivated, leads to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. And in another place in the teachings, this very famous quotation, within this very fathom-long body, with its perceptions and inner sense, lies the world, lies the cause of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path that leads to the cessation of the world. So this is, this is a way of, um, a, a, maybe a slightly different language, but this is the, the Four Noble Truths. The entire the Four Noble Truths, that whole understanding and teaching lies within this very fathom-long body. When we look at the sutta itself, and when we go to this teaching and read the words there, there's a lot in this section on body. And uh, I can't go through it all in detail this evening. I'll, I'll do a brief recap of some of it. And Andrea spoke to some of it last night. It begins, as she said, with mindfulness of breathing, simply knowing that we're breathing, breathing in, breathing out. We know if it's a long breath or a short breath. There's a way that we uh, can attend to the breath, uh, what's called attending to the the body of the breath, the whole body of the breath, and that can be seen in a couple ways. Uh, being with the beginning, the middle, ending, and ending of a breath, or with the breath as it arises in within the, and passes within the whole body. And the breath is also used as a vehicle for calming. Breathing in, one calms the bodily formation. Breathing out, one calms the bodily formation. So these different ways that we can attend to the breath. We bring mindfulness to the body in terms of the postures of uh, standing, walking, sitting, lying down. I like to add uh, in between, all the in between parts, between these different postures to that. Different activities, going and coming, uh, 
looking ahead, looking away, flexing, extending the limbs, moving the body about, carrying things, eating, drinking, tasting, defecating, urinating, standing, sitting, going to sleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. We understand and explore the body in terms of uh, the anatomical uh, parts of it. And it's traditionally 32 parts, beginning with hair of the head, hair of the body, and through uh, bones and teeth and the different organs and fluids and things that make up the body. We uh, attend to the body in terms of what are called the five, the four elements. Uh, Datu is the word in Pali, and Andrea spoke to this, this um, kind of basic sensation level and these are earth, water, fire, and air, and I'll speak more about this later. We contemplate body in terms of its nature to decay, in terms of the death of the body and its nature to decay. And um, One compares one's own body with a decaying corpse, and at the time of the Buddha, one was encouraged to sit in what was called a charnel ground. It was a place where corpses were uh, left, that, that were, uh, where it was too, not enough, someone who is too poor to be cremated and and to watch that decay. Someone once sent me a a video, it was a time-lapse video of a decaying uh, animal's corpse. It's quite fantastic over the course of just a minute or two. It went from looking like an animal through this whole incredible movement and seething and churning and in bugs and things to becoming earth and a plant sprouting out from it. It's quite fantastic We're contemplating the body and the, and the nature of our own body to be the same as this. And, and finally, the way the sutta ends, which is a lot of what uh, Andrea wove this into her instructions this morning, one knows simply that there is a body. You can do all that other stuff, or you can, it says right there, or establish mindfulness to the extent necessary to know there is a body. So that's our fallback we can always know, oh, there is a body. You can even say these words. So I want to look a little bit uh, more into, um, into this, this uh, section in here about the elements, the elemental nature of body. Because I think understanding and seeing in this way actually uh, leads to, points to a very powerful shift in our meditation and practice that leads us in the direction of, of what we might say is true insight. And this is insight meditation. And when we hear this, earth, air, fire, and water, it sounds kind of almost alchemical or archaic, and, and it might seem like it's pointing to some kind of antiquated way of seeing things. And for, I think for this, these words and this way of seeing the body to make any sense at all, it has to be understood in the context of our very direct experience. These words are not in and of themselves important, but what they're pointing to in our direct experience of the body or, or of materiality, any kind of material form, is what we're interested in there. So we have these these uh, four um, elements, four aspects of um, how body manifests. And the earth, patavi datu, has um, the characteristics of solidity, uh, the range of hardness to softness, various textures of roughness and smoothness and all the var- variations in between those. The water element, apodatu, has... Uh, manifests as both fluidity and cohesion. And so there's uh, bodily fluids, uh, sweat and tears and uh, urine, things like that, rain, running water in the nature around us. And this aspect of cohesion, if you think of taking flour and adding uh, liquid water or milk or something, and it coheres or gathers the flour together and you can uh, create maybe a loaf of bread or something. And if you think about these bodies, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's something around 75% or more of the body is water. And if you took a Greg like me and, and removed the water, you'd, you'd have this pile of dry bits up here. It, would, it wouldn't hold together. It would be 
separate bits fall into that. So that co- cohering quality of nature or uh, function of it, of water. And then the wind or air element, tejo datu, has um, movement and pressure, tension, vibration. You can th- notice that the, as the breath moves in and out of the body and the pressure that comes as though uh, like a balloon filling up and various movements in the body that are aspects of the air element. And these usually show up in, in pairs or groups. They rarely manifest just uh, by themselves, although sometimes one uh, really stands out. You know, if we sit a long time, an earth element manifesting as hardness usually shows up. Sometimes gets very strong, for example. But when we explore the body in terms of these, it takes us directly to... Um, to a kind of essential reality below the surface appearances of things where we tend to live our lives a lot because we tend to see uh, the body as, um, we tend to objectify it a lot. We see it as something that we, we work with and you know, we, we, work, we work on it a lot. We um, you know, dress it up and we put makeup on it and we try to fix it and try to make it look a certain way. And there's a huge industry that helps us with this fashion and cosmetics and all of the things that we can use to try to make the body be better than it maybe wants to be on its own if left to its own devices. <laughs> Some ideas of that and we're, we're sold a lot of ideas around that. And but in meditation, in this practice we do here, So that's a very external, that's putting it out there and working on the surface of it. But in our meditation, we come at it from a completely different perspective and we're interested in understanding it from the inside out, you could say, not from the outside in. And and there's something really powerful in this shift because when we objectify the body and, you know, we put it out there and we, we work it over, and it tends, it has this effect of, of disconnecting us from, from our body. We don't live in it anymore. We live, we live a little distance away from it, a mirror's distance away or something like that. And, and it disconnects us not only from our own bodies, but from the world around us and from others and from some aspect of our, our inner um, being, from our sense of our own aliveness, I think. But awareness of the body, exploring the body, embodying the body from the inside within the body has actually the opposite effect. And I think through this process, we're actually learning to uh, actually live in them, inhabit them. And this has powerful and I think great healing uh, possibilities for us. And as we begin to do this, we start to see that there's a way that the body is infused with a kind of natural awareness, that that's part of its nature. And we also see that this thing that we call body is much less of a thing and much more a process. And so through, through exploring the body in this way, it drops us below the level of our thoughts and ideas and concepts and images, all our, our de- ideas about who we are, about the nature of reality. And this has really profound consequences, as I've been saying, for the way it can impact our life and understanding. And, and there's a beautiful um, phrase, uh, verse from a Tibetan teacher, Tibetan Buddhist teacher named uh, Kalu Rinpoche, that many of you may have heard that I think points and speaks directly to this in a beautiful, simple way. He once said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and we are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. This kind of beautiful poetic way of, of 
of encapsulating the whole of the teachings in a certain way. And when he says we see that we're nothing, this is not some kind of, not pointing to some non-existence or disintegration or annihilation or something. I think it points to rather the letting go of, of false or wrong views that tend to bind us to um, a limited and limiting way of looking at things, a limiting and limited and limiting perspective. Because I think so often, and maybe this is especially true in modern times, I don't know, but I think often there is this feeling of numbness and disconnection that um, is in our lives. I think that often some connection, some uh, noticing of this is an aspect of what brings many of us to meditation practice, to what we might call a spiritual search, is, is touching this and wanting to um, do something about it, this sense of numbness or disconnection. And we tend to speak about nature or the environment as, as out there somewhere, you know, we'll go out into it, maybe if we have time this afternoon, I'll, I'll spend time, I'll go out into nature as, as separate from us. We separate ourselves from nature. But as Andrea was saying last night, you know, this, this mind-body-heart, that, that this thing we call us, this is an aspect of nature. Mind and body are nature. We're an aspect of the landscape, of the environment. We're not separate from it. We come from it. We're supported by it. We will return to it. And I think some part of us actually really knows this in a deep way and longs for that, a connection to that in a, in a real way. Not just in, in lovely words, but in a, in a way that, that our heart is actually knows that again. This is a, a poem from D.H., or a verse from D.H. Lawrence that, uh, that I love that spo- points to this, speaks to this. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me. That I am part of the earth, my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There is not any part of me that is alone and absolute, except perhaps my mind. And we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surfaces of the water. Somewhere, sometime in the early days of early years of my uh, meditation practice, I heard a quotation, something like this, and it stayed with me. Someone once said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And in some way, I think that there's there's a, a, a truth and a profundity to this simple statement that points really to what we're doing here. That's what we're doing, is we're, we're, we're giving it back. We, something that we mistakenly appropriated as our own. Because everything we experience in the body, mind, heart, in this flow of of our life, in the world around us, internally, externally, it's all nature. It's the unfolding of natural processes. That's what that is. And as we begin to see and open and really um, live from this place more and more, then there is a way that we give it back. We let go of having to own any of that. And there's a great relaxation that can come from this, that does come from this, and a great healing, a deep kind of healing, I think. And this laying down of a, of a kind of burden that we did not realize we were carrying. And, and through this process, we open, I think, into the fullness of what uh, Rinpoche was uh, speaking to when he talked about this being nothing and being nothing, we are everything. We open into that fullness, 
that emptiness and fullness. Now these kinds of words, they can sound, maybe they sound kind of cool and lovely even, or profound in some way, maybe inspiring. But then, you know, we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror, which is always a tragic error for me. (laughs) You know, it's like my face is usually sloped off to one side and my hair is like a wave breaking off what little is left breaking to the right or the left and we look there and yeah there we are there I am or sometimes when I look it's like who is that (laughs) who's that old guy and and we fall into this habitual sort of objectifying we we, there it is yeah there I am all right you know we that's such a a deep habit of of looking at things in that way and when then we lose ourselves in all of we think about it, <laughs> ooh, not looking so good there. And we take it personally and and we use all the thoughts and things, you know, to either bolster our ego, yeah, looking pretty good today, or or some way that we oh, we beat ourselves up more often. All the ways we're not good enough or there's something wrong with it, or it's flawed in all these ways. And, But when we come into body from the inside, it's really different. From the perspective of of the elements, the elemental nature of body, let's do a little, let's break up the talk here. Just, you can sit, you can close your eyes or not. But let your attention come within the body for a moment. May help to close your eyes. Let the attention just rest within the body, feeling the body is sitting here. And, and just for a moment, let, let your, uh, one of your hands, your arm's going to be involved with it, let it move slowly, just slowly up and down, slowly raising and lowering one of your hands. Maybe just a little bit, just for a moment. Let it float up gently and turn, gently floating down. And you can let it just come to rest now on your lap or leg or wherever. Open your eyes if you'd like or leave them closed. So we can have an image of an arm or a hand but what do we, what's the experience in doing something simple like that, that movement? What do we actually notice there? There's movement, maybe warmth or coolness, and tingling, and light touching sensation. So from from this perspective, hand and, and arm and that's just, those are just words. <laughs> There's, they have no. They point to an image, and we you know they're useful things. But but what we see that that there we can't experience hand or arm. That's just a, a word, an idea. We can experience those um, sensations. And I described my experience. You had your own. It's this dance of the elements manifesting in these ways. So there I had air. I I think I described a lot of air and fire element. (laughs) Warmth, coolness, movement, pressure, tingling. Maybe some softness. A little bit of earth as softness. Vibration, these different things. And yeah, you know, I can see those, your bodies out there and you can see ours sitting up here and that's, there's reality to that. And we, we take care of the bodies 
We take care of the body and, and we live in the world in this way. But, but that's, so often we live in that realm and, it's, and as though that's the whole of reality. But in meditation, it opens us to this whole other uh, plane, you could say, or, or realm. You know, and is the, is the experience, when we look into the mirror, is that more real than that experience of dance of pressure and movement and warmth and coolness? Is it possible that they're both equally real? But when we move from this objectifying relationship to body, to this uh, sense of the, the dynamic process there, like we just experienced with the moving the, the arm, the hand up and down, there's, there's something that's profound in that because um, if if our relationship and our understanding and the way that we look at things stays on this level of concept or idea or thought-based, kind of thought-based reality, we don't get to the level of, of insight, of true insight, because arm, hand, that doesn't change. <laughs> it just remains as a fixed idea that we might hold in any moment. But this other world is doing nothing but changing, <laughs> right? It's nothing but a dance of changing uh, sensations. That's all that's there, this dance of these elements. That's what that is. If we look closely, we'll all we see is that it's just this flow of change. It's this flux, that's what's there. So it drops us below the surface appearances to something, uh, a different, maybe more essential reality in a certain way. And we see that this, we hold what we've seen as this solid fixed things is actually not that at all. That there's nothing solid or fixed there at all. That it's constantly changing and it's changing actually really fast. And sometimes we tune into the rapidity of that change and it's mind blowing to see how fast it's actually changing. And it's just doing its thing. It's happening by itself. It is just nature. It's just nature doing its thing. And we can't get any of it to stay and we can't hold on to any of it and make it be a certain way. It's not, there's nothing in that that's, you know, we get a really sit and it's so comfortable and it's pleasant and we got it. But it, does, it just doesn't last. And it's great to have a pleasant feeling, but it's gonna change. It doesn't stay. So there's a, a kind of unreliability there that's not a problem, but it's um, a part of the nature of things that we fight and struggle against. And then we see that this, this dance and movement and flow on the level of the elements is just, uh, it's a, it's a flow of cause, cause and effect. It's, it's a causal flow. It's nature showing up as cause and effect. Things come together, fall apart, coming together and falling apart. And there's no core or solid essence to that. That its nature is this flow of cause and change, cause and effect. And so this opens us into the realm of, of true insight understandings on this level. And, and seeing on this level, there's a natural way that it inclines the mind to letting go or to giving back what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. We offer this back. This is the realm of understanding that has the power to actually liberate the mind and heart. This is what we're interested in here. Everything leads us in this direction in some way or other. So it cuts through our ways that we identify with, with any particular part, identifying with the body, with all of our uh, minds, mental reactivity. You know, when we see things on the level of the elements, and we see that's happening here, it's in this body, and it's in the world all around me. And it's the same thing, as Andrea said, it's all the same stuff. She said it's all stardust or star stuff. You actually have to get an exploding star to get it. 
it's all made from a supernova. How cool is that? These stars explode and then you get birds and people in toaster ovens and prairie dogs. If they don't do that, we don't get anything heavier than a gas. You have to need heavy stuff. You have to get a star to explode. But then when we start seeing, well, hardness, internally, externally, well, how do we say I am, I'm hardness? Oh, my hardness, my heat. It's hard to claim it as, as I, as me, as mine. We see that, that these things are the same in this body. It's the same out there. What part of that is me? This is just the nature. This is nature manifesting, unfolding. Hmm. Well, there's lots of good stuff here that I'm skipping. (laughs) And none of us will be any the worse for that. But there's a sense, there's a way in which I feel that this, um, this exploration of mindfulness directed to the body is, um, you know, it's, it's where we're beginning, but it's, maybe it's where we end. In my end is my beginning, in my beginning is my end. When we come to, when we explore this in this direct way, not thinking about it, it invites us to open to a kind of awareness and understanding because it is just, everything we do is an exploration of nature, but I think through this avenue of mindfulness of the body, of kaya nupasana, that it's very, very clearly this exploration of nature. And, and it opens us to a kind of, a, an aspect of awareness and, and an understanding that is, that's already there. And it points to the fact that, that we're not, this practice is not about creating or getting something that we don't have. And it's not about going somewhere other than where we are right now. And this is really important because we're so kind of conditioned to look at, you know, we come here to get something and to get to be elsewhere <laughs> other than where we are. But that's not what we're doing now. And the beginning and the end of the practice are really come to this recognition of the truth that is here right now. It's always here. It's always been here. It always will be here. And we're swimming in it every moment. A teacher of mine once said, we're swimming in Nibbana and our faces are mashed up against the Buddha, but we just don't see it. And we are, we're swimming in this. It's here right now. The truth is always the truth. If it's not always the truth, it ain't the real deal. And so in an essential way, you know, I had that quotation, within this fathom-long body, we have the world. We have the whole universe. It's all here. And so we have what we need in this regard. We have everything we need right here in this body to understand and plumb the depths of what the Buddha was trying to uh, point us towards. So I want to end tonight with um, a, a verse from, um, from the Terigata. The Terigata is a collection of verses. Uh, there's a Terigata and a Teragata, and they are verses of the, the monks and the nuns uh, around the time of the Buddha. And some of them are, they're kind of like enlightenment poems, but not all of them are that. Some of them are that. Some of them are just verses about um, something that they were reflecting on or something that was powerful for them at a time. And they're collected in these beautiful um, verse form. And this is a, uh, these three short verses are attributed to the Venerable Ananda who was probably the guy who said, e wangame sutang, thus have I heard, because it's said that he had a really good memory and uh, remembered most, of the, um, most of, the, of the teachings of the Buddha. And he was the Buddha's cousin and attendant and was um, 
apparently a really nice, very kind person. And this, um, this was after, at a time in his life when the Buddha had passed away and also some of the, the Buddha's uh, two chief di- disciples. I think a lot of the old gang had, had died off. And Ananda was still around, still alive. And, and so there's a, it's a little sad, this poem. <laughs> so apologies for that. But there's a poignant appreciation of the value of mindfulness of the body in here. So it doesn't have a whole lot to do with what I've been talking about, but you're going to get it anyway. <laughs> it has to do with mindfulness of the body. So anyway, here you go. This is the Venerable Ananda speaking after the Buddha and many of the other uh, of his friends had died, passed away in his older age. All the directions are obscure and the teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is darkness. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. I'm going to repeat that one. There is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. I love this, seeing this as our friend. The old ones have all passed away, and I do not fit in with the new. And so today I muse alone, like a bird who has gone to roost. So we'll take just a minute of quiet and let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.